Commercial real estate is a cyclical market. At its best, it's a rising tide that lifts all boats. But when the tide goes out, we typically see that some fare well and others are left stuck in the drought. So where are we in this current cycle? What can we learn from the past? And what should today's investors be looking out for as they aim to stay afloat? I'm Ryan Williams, founder, CEO, and executive chairman of Cadre, a commercial real estate platform whose focus is to democratize and modernize commercial real estate investing so more people can access this sector. Today, we are working under the premise that history tends to repeat itself. Many of today's titans were tempered by stagflation in the 1980s, the impact of past rate hikes, and of course, the global financial crisis. We wanted to bring in a storied professional who has seen enough to know what we need to be wary of and how to identify opportunities strong enough to withstand future headwinds. Our guest thrived through many cycles in his decade at Goldman Sachs and his near 20 years at Vornado as president and then CEO. He's currently a part owner of the NBA's Milwaukee Bucks, and he serves as a trustee and director of the Urban Land Institute. He also serves on the executive committee of the Wharton Real Estate Center. This is Mike Facitelli, chairman of our investment committee and a personal mentor and friend. Mike, thank you for joining us. It's really great to be with you. As I mentioned earlier, Mike has been an invaluable mentor, advisor, chairman of our investment committee, and someone who has seen many cycles and many lessons learned throughout those cycles. Just to jump right in, I would be curious to understand how you compare today's market to past cycles, post-Great Financial Crisis, early 2000s, early 1990s, and any big lessons learned that we can apply today from an investing perspective in terms of what you saw during those periods and post. Thanks, Ryan. It's great to be with you also. I think that each cycle has its own unique characteristics. I would say the 90s were really a supply-driven problem to start with and oversupply problem. The tax rules changed and people overbuilt quickly. And then we had other cycles which were a demand problem where demand fell off very suddenly in the 2008, 9, 10 recession, because we had a big financial collapse. And this is a little bit in between. You had some supply in certain sectors, but you had pretty much the rise in interest rates really was viciously quick. It doubled in a year or less, and really almost six months. And people that that took up the cost of capital for people, and there were pockets of overbuilding, but not really a lot of overbuilding. So the fundamentals were better, but the rates caused a lot of the slowdown and a decrease in valuations and actually slowdown in demand as people would thought we might be heading into a recession. So generally, real estate is a very capital-intensive industry. When you withdraw capital from or the cost of capital goes up, you have a hiccup. I think that's the cycle we're in right now. You're close to a lot of folks who either run banks or you know, run asset managers or real estate private equity shops. You ran Vornado for a while and ran real estate at Goldman. When you think about what inning we're in today, if this were a baseball game and ninth inning is when things reset, where do you think we are? How stable or unstable do you feel? I think it's a great question. It's You've seen some problems brewing in the regional banking system. I think it's more regional banking than money center banks. The regional banks tended to be big lenders to real estate in the local communities they operated in, sometimes more development-oriented also. So I think you'll see more problems coming out of the regional commercial banking system, less so the money center bank. 
But everybody with the regulatory heightened scrutiny by regulators, they're going to be real estate is not a good thing to right. lend to. So that's going to affect all the lending. And you've seen that happen where people pull back lending. They've tightened the parameters. They've lowered the loan to values. They've increased debt service coverages. Again, a typical reaction you have by the banking system, lending system. So that's going to create, I think it's, it's probably middle of the cycle because I think it'll create opportunities going forward, but we haven't yet really marked to market those assets. We haven't taken the pain and the write downs. We're getting there, but it'll be slow and it'll be pushed if there's things like where the Fed seizes the banks, the FDIC, or then that heightens that, quickens that process. I still think there's a ways to go as we adjust the new higher rates and a different demand cycle. There's a lot of people who were looking to own, to buy homes and they're renting longer now. What's your advice as to someone who maybe wants to aspire to buy a home is renting? Should they be trying to find opportunities to buy? Do you think that prices are still going to stay relatively elevated in the space and in the residential space? And how do you think that the current cycle we're in changes home ownership just generally going forward? I think it's actually going to decrease in the short term because it's more expensive to own a home. If you take a look at just one variable, mortgage rates, whatever you could afford with the rates being what they were a year ago or eight months ago is now 20% less. If you were going to buy a house for 400000 you only built the Ford house, and that 400000 house is going to cost you way more, or you're only qualified to carry out 330000 So pricing of homes hasn't adjusted downward enough, come down maybe single digits, hasn't adjusted downward enough to make up that difference in the mortgage rate differential. Then because of that, you're seeing very little inventory in the resale market. It's almost all new homes. And that's because, think about it, if if you're a homeowner in your home, one of your biggest assets is below market mortgage you have. And if you sell your home and buy a new one, you lose that mortgage. You don't take it with you. So you can't afford less of a house or you pay more for a similar size house. So that's why there's been such few transactions. So I'd advise the people to stick it out a little longer in their existing home and or rent a little longer, save up more money. And if the market gets to them or gets a little more, they can afford more. I do think it's a short-term boost to multifamily also because, again, there'll be more renters in that pool because of affordability for People moving out of a home to a single-family home, moving out of an apartment, or buying another home, I, I think there'll be more renters in that pool for longer. Got it. Got it. And I guess, Mike, just as you think about your greatest lessons as you came up in the real estate investing world, what was the most important lesson you learned from your first real estate deal? You're jogging my memory here. <laughs> yeah, that's, like, that's like ancient <laughs> history. I mean, uh, you're testing me there. I think that you know, one of the great lessons in the first deal is uh, I still remember the, the many deals at the beginning is that the projections never what you think. Right. You can do all the models you want and you have to do all the analytics to obviously get a sense of where you are, but invariably they're always wrong. Question is, are they directionally correct? And one of the things I've learned in real estate is that it's really more important to be directionally correct than completely accurate. Our rents moving up or down, our cap rates moving up or down, our rates moving up or down. Is there good demand for that area, that location, that city? And one of the things that Cadre has done really well, identify markets that would grow faster than other markets. And then you think within those markets, what asset classes, what areas might outperform? 
real estate, you can't predict the future. You can learn from those cycles in the past. And I've learned it's never what you think it is, but if you get it directionally correct, you'll probably live to tell another day. Another question I have is mentorship. When you are coming up in the industry, and I consider myself fortunate to be able to spend time with you and some others and learn a lot of things to do and not to do, but who were your best mentors as you were coming up as an investor, and what did you go to them for? I was fortunate when I left uh, business school to join McKinsey, and quite right away it was a different business, but a few people took me under their wings and taught me how to present better and how to analyze things better. And, you know, they took an interest in me growing as a professional. And that, that makes a huge difference to you and your confidence and your ability. And that, that happened when I went into Goldman and investing. There were some older people at Goldman who'd been through cycles, who shared that wisdom with me. One guy on Dan Nidick on real estate was very, a very good investor. We had other people very good at analyzing, some are better at presenting. And you, each person has a different skill set. And I think as you, you go through that, you take the best traits and qualities that you can for yourself, but it has to be modified for your own limitations and strengths. And having somebody like you come into a thing, which is another different, you came from a different background, but overlapping. And you've been a joy to work with. You've been a great, you've been a great pupil, if you will, because you absorb everything you want to learn. It takes, mentorship takes the person that's getting mentored to want to learn, right. to be open-minded, to be cognizant of their strengths and weaknesses, and yet still trying to get better and better, and then do that for somebody else. And generally, there's an age gap in that because of age and experiences, but it can be closer than you think together. I appreciate you saying that, and I've learned a lot. Last couple of questions I had for you, going back to the investing side. So you're very uniquely positioned. You ran Vornado on the board, understand the office market probably better than anybody. The most frequent question I get from investors and people who aren't investors is, what happens to all these office assets that in these big cities that aren't getting leased up and banks may become the new owners. Anything you're hearing or seeing that's interesting in terms of readapting conversions, or do you think prices just get reset more broadly in, in the office space uh, and becomes a new normal? A little bit of both. I think if you actually look at, there'll be some conversions to other uses, obviously apartments, maybe storage, maybe medical Things that are in demand, but you can't convert many of these buildings efficiently for all those uses. So if there's a hundred stocks, a hundred, maybe 10, 15, 20% can be converted economically. The rest, I think, will atrophy slowly or quickly, depending right. on the lease structure in the building. And then there may be even be teardowns at a readjusted pricing. So it'll do something bigger with more density. So your land costs won't be the building will be repriced down to what land costs alternatives. Yeah. I think all well, that's healthy. There'll be some pain, obviously, in owning some of those assets, but there'll be some buildings that will be apt be able to put capital into them that will be adapted. I think one of the issues that happened in the office is because of COVID, we had this big question mark is what's the office of the future look like? <laughs> and people are not going to go to the office. I think there's plenty of studies out coming out relatively quickly that people want to go to the office they're more productive in the office. You build a culture in the office. Mm -hmm. You build a team in the office. So I think that pendulum swung far. Maybe it's going to be a hybrid, but it's a hybrid, I think, closer to what we were and what we were, what we've come through. And so I think that'll also help with office because it's been, retail went through this a little bit a while ago and retail's come out of it. There's still retail. Right. People thought retail was dead because of Amazon or mm -hmm. internet retailing or whatever. 
but it's just, it's going to be more focused. It's going to be better offering for the consumer. And I think offers will be the same. Got it. You have been a big proponent. You've pushed me a lot in the context of Cadre to think about using data and using data to inform investing decisions, aggregating it, pattern matching. As you look back on your career and some of the experiences you've had, how has the usage of data changed? And have you seen any applications that are really interesting that you think could become like the norm for how people invest in markets or in cross-asset classes? I think there's two things. One, we become much more efficient in using the data. You know, before people would call around to the brokerage community, get idea how to set rents, right, and get what demand patterns were. But now they can use all kinds of data that's available through sourcing and different sources of data and crunch through large amounts of data in a much more efficient way to get that same information in maybe two days or three days that would take two or three weeks before. So people are more efficient, give them more time to think and get more insights into the real issues in the around that market. Secondly, there's all kinds of data produced now by phones and pickups and Uber drivers and restaurant deliveries and all that, where people are moving, what time they're moving. And that gives you a really good sense of the area in single-family homes, for instance, which we've done. We use data that looked at crimes, looked right. at school systems, and looked at accessibility, transport time. It turns out those zip codes were more effective at growing rents than others that didn't have those characteristics. So I think data will get more powerful you know, even before AI in terms of its effectiveness that we can use it. And we've done that at Cadre in identifying markets within markets, sub-markets, and then products within those sub-markets. Right. And it'll get better and quicker and more efficient. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And I think the applications of AI are going to be really interesting in terms of being able to pattern match and get insights and on your forecasts and see what historical buildings traded at. I don't think yeah. it's going to replace, in the end, human judgment. I do think it's going to give the deal person and the investment committees and the buyers and the seller more ability to think mm. and apply that judgment. But I think in the end, there'll still be judgment applied to that data. Right. Got it. One of the questions that you know I've had for a while, and we're focusing today in the mid-cap investing space at Cadre, is if you had to pick a sector in a market where you would invest and specialize today, what would that sector and what would that market be? Or would you go more broad when you're thinking about the opportunities going forward? I think if you remember when you started Cadre, we talked about the fact that we were mid-2015, uh, right. 16, something like that. Yeah. And we come out of this great recession, the Great Depression of yeah. 08 to 10. We had a lot of pain in that. Still... 12, 13, you were feeling the effects of that, 13, 14. You, didn't, you saw time to get through that. So we entered at a time which we had a good run. And then I think it got frothy quickly. Rates were dropping quickly. So then we were saying very defensive about our posture. And if you're defensive, you look for cash flowing type assets. Multifamily is always a good one to, to do because it's always going to demand or can be more or less depending on jobs and, right. and on wealth creation and ages and demographic. But if you did that in a good market, you could grow your way through and you could set rents such that if you were off a little bit, you could adjust them and still have cash flow quickly. I think we had a very good defensive posture early on, not predicting what happened, but the cycle was kind of, it ended for a different reason. It kind of got COVID. Then you had this 
crazy interest rate inflation. So you had these things happen that didn't happen as scheduled and expected. But being defensive allowed our portfolio to perform quite well, I think, under those things. I still think you look for those same characteristics going forward. You might feel, though, that price per pound, the price per thing in like office eventually is going to be important retail, just like rents, rental sales and retail. Certain parameters that have been tried and true will become back in vogue, I think, as you look at in a defensive thing where we don't grow as fast, what's going to be okay? And then the area where you get outside growth, you participate in the upside. Right. So that's the balance to find. But I feel that pretty good that things with cash flow, hotels are more risky, more volatile. And then the debt markets are telling us that they're going to price into right. that, their quotes because they're much more comfortable letting into multifamily or single family rentals than they are, quite frankly, office or hotels right now. And retail went through that redlining for a while. So it changes, but I would say defensively, multifamily still stands out in my mind. Self-storage, specialized niche businesses like medical office and so forth. I got it. I got it. And last question, Mike, and this is something I've, you know, we spend a lot of our time when we're meeting, discussing, it still is a people business and you still building a business, investing, even if it's on a small scale, you've got to manage people and you've got to lead them. One of the things that I've admired about you is you're an incredible investor, but Every single person I talked to said you're a good, decent person as well and a leader that people follow. And so what's the most important leadership lesson you've learned throughout your career? I think it's humility. Mm. I think it's not forgetting where you come from. Mm. My mother said, be nice to all the people on the way up because the same people you're going to come by on the way down. <laughs> and you want them to lend you a helping hand, not yeah. stomp on your hand. Right. And I think if you're humble about your successes and your failures, you do good with people as much as you can. Doesn't mean you're not tough on right. people. Right. You don't have high expectations. I think it, it inures to your benefit over your whole mm-hmm. career in life. People want to work with you. They want to work with that team. You created that culture at Cadre. They want right. to be part of that team. And I think it just, it feeds on itself. If you're a one and done guy, don't care about them or you act like you're entitled, right. I think there's less people that want to have you lead them. Yep. And I think leadership in any of these businesses, investing, people, management is critically important. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate it. This is the first official episode and first podcast. So I couldn't think of anybody else to want to kick it off then with you and appreciate you, appreciate your time and appreciate all the lessons you've shared as well. I hope you have a a good response from the audience and (laughs) hope we can learn some lessons and invest (laughs) the money well and carefully. And stay humble. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Thank you, Mike. Thanks, Ryan. On every episode of The Real Estate of Mind, we spend some time following our discussion to break down conversations so that they're simple and easy to understand, and so that there are digestible takeaways that we all can use in our everyday lives. Let's start with market cycles. Market cycles are generally familiar to most of us steeped in finance. A market expands or grows when times are good. It reaches hypersupply when there's not enough demand to meet the production, and then it enters a recession and we start over with a period of recovery. Mike said he expects that we are mid-cycle, meaning he expects we're around that period of hypersupply, contraction, that comes before the turning point. Think of it as the fifth inning of a nine-inning baseball game. This is largely in line with the consensus view that we've heard over recent months, which holds that we will see slower employment growth, slower rent growth, and vacancies rise in the near future. This is also a period, as Mike put it, when many properties have yet to mark to market. 
That's where the second concept comes in, price dislocation. As Warren Buffett said, be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. The global financial crisis featured many strong fund vintages. In the decades following 2008, the top 10 commercial real estate investors averaged more than 19% annualized returns in their value-add funds. This is because they were able to capitalize on the disconnects between what a property was valued and what the prevailing market would value that property at. The third concept is interest rates. The difference between today's cycles and previous cycles is that today's cycle is predominantly an interest rate-driven, challenged environment. In 1990, it was about oversupply. In 2008, it was about subprime credit crisis issues. The rising cost of capital is impacting a variety of sectors today, everything from banking to public markets to commercial real estate. There's a barbell effect as well that's happening today that presents both risk and opportunity. If you look at certain sectors within the real estate space, just like any other sector, there's bound to be winners and losers. Multifamily is one of the most interesting sectors because of the lack of affordability of single-family homes. There's a lack of affordability of single-family homes because interest rates are so high, so folks are no longer able to graduate from renting to buying. Today's markets are teaching a lesson in perseverance. There's compelling opportunities, but you have to have the discipline to know when to lean in and when not to, and you have to have the conviction and persistence to keep looking and learning. We want to thank you again for your continued support. Check in next month for a new episode and follow us on Twitter at Cadre RE or on LinkedIn for breaking news, content updates, and more. If today's episode sparked your interest, check out our show notes in the description, where we'll link some of the organizations and concepts brought up in today's show, as well as a full guest bio. Another resource for you is Cadre's insight page on our website, cadre.com. With each episode, we'll craft a blog post that covers some of the show's biggest moments, as well as more detail that we didn't have time to talk about here. Thank you for joining the Real Estate of Mind and the Cadre team. As always, we look to bring unique perspectives to some of the biggest parts of the industry, all through the lens of sharp guests and deep conversations. We'll be back in a month and hope you will be too.